the most important leadership is leadership of self. You have to go back and lead yourself. Step back and say, what is excellence for you? Once you see it, and don't just make a fast decision that is silly. You have to agonize about it, what I want. What do I want my excellence to be at work? You have to think about it. Once you make that decision, everything becomes easier. But first you have to make, commit yourself to the vision. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Today I have the honor of speaking with Horst Schulze, the man who defined the luxury hotel experience through his long tenure as president of the Ritz-Carlton Hotels. He then went on to define what ultra-luxury meant as the founder of the Capella Hotel Group. His worldly success is remarkable, but what is most notable about Horst Schulze is his love for our Lord and how that overflows into his love for people. Horst is an exemplary leader, and he is the expert on building an organization focused on excellence. In fact, he wrote a book entitled Excellence Wins, a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in a world of compromise. This interview is filled with so much wisdom, things you will think about for days after. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Horace Schultze, thank you for being with me today and uh, being a part of Candid Conversations. Well, Jonathan, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Horst, I wonder if you could just take a little bit of time and tell us a little bit about your background, your growing up, and how you got into the, the field, the business that you're in now. Well, I come from a small village in Germany, small village. And, and after the war, I went to my parents when I was 11 and said I would like to work in the hotel business. They said, yeah, yeah, because it didn't take it serious. And I kept insisting on it. Now, the weird thing is I had never been in a hotel. There is no hotel in the village. I never had been in a restaurant before. I must have read something about we don't know. My parents said, yeah, yeah. I kept on speaking about it, begging for it, talking about it. They started slowly get embarrassed because that was not something that you did in Germany. You went into technical shops. So pretty soon I kept on talking in school. The neighbors and the kids laughed about it. But my parents then said, well, since he's so possessed, they inquired what to do. A government agency found a job for me 100 kilometers away from home. At that time after the war, that was very far. The reason why they picked that hotel, it was the best in the region by far. Mm. So at 14, I left and went to work in that hotel. Now, something unique happened in that moment that I have to share with you. Mm. And because it impacted my life. The first day of work, uh, let me stop just before that. Everybody told me, now that's a very fine hotel. Mm. There are only fine ladies and gentlemen the guests there. Now behave yourself accordingly and you are a servant. But when I arrived, the maitre d' said, you young men, there were two others that started, and we lived in a dorm room. Uh, you young men, you start tomorrow morning at 7. From now on, though, try to come to work to create excellence and not just work. Mm. I just went over my head with 14. <laughs> I mean, 
excellence in washing dishes, cleaning floors, and so on. But it slowly started to make sense. Mm-hmm. And to finish that background, because it, is, it really guided my life. Mm-hmm. Once a week I went to a hotel school, very normal German once a week, whatever you do, you go to the trade school of that. Kids from the whole area came there. And after about two years, the teacher said, write us a story, everybody, three pages, after what you now think about this industry. Um, go back thinking what I'm going to write. That night, I was in the, in the dining room, and the majority entered the room. I could feel it. I was I had my back to the door. That's the presence he had. He was an exceptional human being. And I saw him approach a table. And I realized for the first time, it was clear, the people on that table were proud that he came to them. I contemplated that that night, and I thought, that's the story. Because, after all, that was a reversal. We were supposed to be the servants, and they are the fine ladies and gentlemen. And for the first time... I realized that that Major D defined himself as somebody exceptional. It doesn't matter what your job in life is. You define yourself as who you are and how you work and by creating excellence. For the first time, I fully understood the thinking of excellence, the value of it. And I wrote an essay around it and I named that as a We Are Ladies and Gentlemen. Just let the guest out. Serving ladies and gentlemen. Hmm. So that impacted me because after turning in that essay the following week, everybody showed up and the teacher read it, and it's the only A I had in my whole life. <laughs> so it impacted me particularly. Of course. Hard. Horst, you are recognized for building a culture of excellence. In fact, your book is called Excellence Wins A No Nonsense Approach to Becoming the Best in a world of compromise. What led you to write a book like that? Well, I happen to be quite a good good friend with Stephen Covey. Most people know who that was. And he kept on urging me uh, after studying what we did in Red Scarlet that I should share this, that I have an obligation to share that. Well, I said, yeah, yeah, and so on. But I, with little interest, though. And he kept on reminding me. But one day, on the way home, I drove home in my car. He he called me and he said, Horst, I'm disappointed in you. You own it to write a book. You have to share what what you do and and how and why and the philosophy and the culture around it. You're obligated to do that. And I said, yeah, yeah, like I had done before. But soon after, Stephen passed away. And that gave me a bad conscience. Uh, Truly... I apologized in my mind with Steve and wrote a book. And of course, the thought was that I have to try and reach young people. That's why I told the story more or less in the book, so that young people wouldn't put it away after a chapter or two. The first outcome when we first wrote was it was more like an academic book, and then we threw it away and I said, no, 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 it has to be a story. Yeah. story about how you lead yourself or how you lead others. Yeah. Leadership is a confusing thing. The first thing in leadership is yourself. <laughs> you know, right. you can't you lead, lead others unless you yeah, can lead yourself. You have right? to start leading yourself first yeah. before you lead others. Yeah. True excellence can only be accomplished through leadership in others. 
and also in yourself. And it's not management that creates. Now, a leader has to be managing processes and system and controls and etc. etc. Of course. But the true excellence can only be created through leadership. And I was also confused, and that's why I named it the book about this, when I had conversation about excellence with employees, with others, that there was really not a total understanding as to what it is. That's what I tried to express in the book, and that's what Stephen saw. And he, Stephen was, looked at the hotel and at the hotels and had some experience, and he, he said, what is remarkable that there is an overall culture of excellence. Now, that's what you have. you have to share how to accomplish that. Yeah. Fill that word in for us. What was your response? I mean, I, I know it fills out into almost every facet of everything. But, the but word excellence. What, what, yeah, walk us through excellence. Well, well, excellence is never an accident. Never. It's always the commitment, the decision for high intent. High intent. In all that you do. In, in a business, I have to say, what is my high intent, ultimate outcome, what I'm doing? That's called vision or purpose at work. And so I believe that as a leader, not to give your employees purpose, you're failing right there. We know Aristotle studied what makes a person fulfilled. It's purpose and belonging. And you go on, it has been started ever long. If I know that, and my business functions because of all kinds of human beings, now wh- why wouldn't I as a leader give them purpose and belonging when I know it is of great value to them? So as a leader, I have to establish a vision of excellence, a purpose of excellence for the organization. How am I going to do that? I, wonder, I have to understand where do I want this company to be 10 years from now, for example. Where do I want it to be? What do I want it to be? Like when I started with Scarlet, you know, everybody laughed at me, laughed their head off, and I told people that. I said, well, I'm going to create the finest hotel company in the world, the finest server company in the world. We didn't have a hotel at the time, mind you. The people that tried to hire laughed at me. You don't, you don't even have a hotel yet. No, but that's my purpose. That is the purpose that I will give that to everybody. And of course, the leader then says, is my purpose good for all concerned? Not for me. For me. Yes, right. for me. Is it good for the investors? All. Yes. And not just an easy answer. The leader agonizes. Hmm. Is it good for all the customers? Is it good for society? Is it good for all employees? Now, as a Christian, I would say we'll got a proof. But if you are non-Christian, you don't have to do that. Because most likely it does, if it's good for all concerned. So once I have that destination, that purpose established, so now I have established what drives everything, a destination of excellence. Because it's good for all concerned. It's good for what we do for the customers, that's what we do. It's good for the investors, so what do you do to? It's good for the employees. It's good for all concerned. So it, it, it so with otherwise relationship and everything is included here. Now, once I have established that as the leader, I have to keep it alive, I have to keep it energized, I have to create an environment, I have to create systems and controls and effort and everything 
to create it. Right. But I now know what to create because the ultimate decision was excellence. Your destiny is not chance. Your destiny is the result of a great decision with high intent. Not something you hope for. But I mean, Jonathan, we, we are here at the Church of the Apostles. I came here this morning. How did I get here? I only was able to get here because I had that destination in mind. If I wouldn't have it in mind, I would be just be driving around. I would, may end up somewhere where I want to be, don't want to be. So why would I, as an organization, as an individual, not have a destination in mind? Now, as Christians, we know our ultimate destination. But I'm not talking about I'm talking the destination here in this world. Why wouldn't we have that in mind? I mean, we just go around and leave it up to coincidence. That's not what creates your destiny. Your destiny in this, in this world is to have a clear decision of high intent. That means excellence and where, where you're going to go. And then you invite people to join in it if you have a work. Do you see interconnectivity to bring it to your faith? Do you see interconnectivity between your purpose and leadership and a lot of the principles that you've walked out and your Christian faith? Well, clearly, if I was not a Christian, I could easily justify myself. A destination is only good for me. I cannot do that. I have no right to do that as a Christian. It's impossible to do that as a Christian. Real excellence includes the spirituality of a human being. That's why there are very few leaders, really. Mm. They're managers that manage the stuff today. I work with many companies now, consulting on the board and so on. And I found that many, and others that are known crazily, there is no intent to make it good for all concerned. Mm. Employees are hired to fulfill a certain function and create a certain income. But the organization doesn't ask themselves, is our objective also good for every employee? In fact, the employees don't even know what the objective of the company is. It's a secret. I worked with one company a few years ago. It was a consulting deal. I asked, does everybody know, what is your vision? Oh, and they pulled out the annual report. It was clearly stated. What's your mission was also clearly stated. It was actually very well done. And I said, well, is everybody aligned to that? Oh, absolutely. Everybody said, everybody knows it. I talked to hundreds of employees. Nobody ever heard of it. In fact, I had some others said, what do you mean, a vision of the company? I only work here. That is immoral in leadership. You know, that's, that's one of the problems that I see. I know I feel stronger about that. Most of maybe it's exaggerated about it in my feelings are. But we hire people to fulfill a function. To me, that's immoral. I hire people to join me in a dream. Mm. That beautiful purpose that's good for all concerned. It's something very beautiful because it's good for all concerned. But if I hire them just to fulfill a function, I treat them no different than the chair on which you're sitting, which is fulfilling a function. They're human beings. It's giving value. It's giving value. Clearly, Mm. you cannot dismiss that if you're a Christian. Mm. It's impossible. Love your neighbor as yourself, and all of a sudden you dismiss that because they're employees. Wait a minute, they're pretty close neighbors. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned that we know that our ultimate purpose as Christians is salvation and heaven. That's our yeah. ultimate 
sure. uh, purpose. But there's even interconnectivity because, you know, the Bible talks about not storing up for yourselves yeah. treasures on this earth, but oh. storing up treasures in heaven. And part of that is helping a person find their purpose, find their role, yeah. find well, their... The Bible even says you will perish without purpose. Right. I want to ask you about leadership because that's a, a word that we've used a lot already. And we live in this world of leadership gurus, leadership books, leadership seminars, leadership conferences. Yeah, it yeah. seems endless. And in my mind, I, I wonder, is everyone a leader? Are we overproducing or over-dramatizing or over-selling a, a, a term that sounds catchy? Well, yeah, there is a leadership crisis. I shockingly ran into that years ago. I mean, I was, was I had a role where I had the responsibility of over 65 hotels was not Ritz Carlton. And I ran into all of a sudden realize when I had the same day experience with two managers, the difference between the two was dramatic. One picked me up in the airport and said, oh, you always pick up the corporate guy and you make a big deal. We're so glad you visit and I know that's a lie. You don't want to see corporate people visiting. I know we're so creative. Everybody's looking forward and so on and so on. And I asked that manager who happens to be here there. I understand in my business, a channel manager stays in a hotel four or five years and then they get moved. He was a year there. It was a new hotel. And I said, how do you like it now living in Milwaukee? And he said, it's a hick town. No service culture. It's a, whoa. I said, how about your staff? What is the... No service culture, no redneck attitude. Wow, I can't wait to get out of here. I said, okay, tell me, where will you have your hotel a year from now? What will it be a year from now? He said, well, if I had a bigger ballroom, if I had my restaurant entrance from the, from the ground floor, not on the second floor, if this, he didn't want to have a vision, he had an excuse for a vision. My goodness, no. No, no, go. Same day, I'm not kidding, it was the same day I went to Columbus, Ohio. There was a hotel very similar than the one Milwaukee built by the same architect. Also a year old. And I said to the general manager, picks me up and said, so how do you like it here? I said, you know, this is a hick town. And, but the people are wonderful. When we moved in our house, people came over and brought cakes and welcomed us. And so my wife likes where they work with it in the school parents. Okay, I said, what about... Your staff, he said, you know, has no service culture, but that's good. We can try them our way. Mm. Wow. I said, a year from now, where will you have your hotel? He said, a year from now, they will be proud of this hotel. That whole community will be proud. Mm. He had a vision. It was clear. And when I went to the hotel, it was very clear. People knew the vision. The other guy had none. And all of a sudden, I said, wait a, wait a minute. I have to study this. The leader, this is a leader, this is a manager. I made it a point for the next three years to start. No, very unscientific, mind you. This is not a scientific thing here, but I'm sure I'm very close. After three years, I came to the conclusion there were five leaders and 60 managers. Now, if you don't mind me going on, I got, I got, what did I saw on the end? If you picture everyone, if you look, would look to your left and see a lot of people, and those lot of people are your potential customers. And you look at your right and you see a lot of people, those are your employees. Now, if I can, if I align, and that's a buzzword too, alignment, what is it? 
if I know exactly what those people on the left want from my products, what they expect from my product, wish from my product, if I know that exactly, and I make sure my employees know it exactly, you're somewhat aligned. If at the same time the employee knows the thinking and the, everything about the company, they're truly aligned. Now, what's management? Management makes sure that there are controls, systems, efforts, etc., so that the employee will give the customer what the customer wants. Leadership creates an environment where they want to do it. Hmm. Want to do it. Now, that doesn't eliminate management, but it brings leadership into it. They want to do it because they know that it leads to excellence, that it leads to value to them, etc., etc. That's the difference. And that's not understood. Uh, management, but what do they learn? They learn management. And what is the worst thing? We award management. Mm. Because after a few months, we say, good job. Good job that you took the flowers from the tables and saved money. Good job. Mm-hmm. Short-term responses. And that's one. That's a, it's, it's a sad situation. It's, it's so common. It's so common. And we have to understand, if I make decisions as a manager without having all concern in mind, I take the flowers away because and that improves my product. Now, it lowers my, my product, but improves my profit. But it lowers my profit. After a while, I probably kill myself with it if there is a better thinking competitor. Yeah, and it's it's there's sort of this division between the bottom line versus creating a culture that will that brings yeah. about change, yeah, sure. and and that, and I'm sure you've seen this, but that's the one that will ultimately flourish, right? The other one yeah. will eventually die. Of, of course, ultimately, but long term, but that's not measured. Long term are not measured. What is measured is what the profit did we make the last three months or the last month because it goes to Wall Street. So of course. We have created a system, a culture, a, a whole program of making sure bottom line on its accounts. That means you, you compromise. Mm. Mm. That means you compromise and take a little bit away here and there. Jonathan, I would have never hired a channel manager that came back from another company and said I was the manager of the year. Because I've seen it. Well, every year that gets a manager of the year, guess how it goes? Black tie affair. Nobody knows who it is. And then suddenly they flash the big picture of the manager of the year on the wall. And everybody stands up and applauds. And he gets a check and he gets a trip around the world. I've seen it. I've seen it a number of times. And this is the guy that took away the piano, made the soap a little bit smaller, bought cheaper towels. It didn't clean as much anymore. And the analyst in the corporate office say, wow, he knows how to manage. I, don't, I didn't want that with Scala. I wanted people who want to create excellence so that I could charge more on the end, but knew full well that I was giving value and was becoming the best in the world. Mind you, it cannot be argued, our system, because we were in five continents. And in every hotel that I opened while I was there, it's the truth. You can check it out. We, it was voted number one in the market segment where it was around the world. 
we were number one in, in Japan, number one in China, etc., etc. It doesn't matter where we were, we were number one. That wasn't a great secret. secret was aligning your people, understanding what the customer wants, make sure the employee understands and make sure the systems deliver it and so on and so on. That's what was the success. It's not a big deal. Make sure that every employee knows the purpose of it all. One more word about it. Adam Smith. And this is so fascinating that the people that we admire and study, but we don't really know what they said. But Adam Smith said, people cannot relate to orders and directions. 300 years ago. Mm. And what do we do? We give orders and directions. Right. So people, he said, People can only relate to objective, meaning purpose, and motive. Why you want that objective? And then you relate it to your, to your employees, and, and, and that's what we did. We hired accordingly, we, we empowered them, we respected them, we created trust with him, and most of all, we created trust in our customer. Customer loyalty is nothing else but they trust you. Everybody talks about customer loyalty. Even that is misunderstood. I have to create a, an environment in which you trust my product, trust that I deliver to you what you want from me. Yeah. Does leadership look different to you as um, a business owner, a manager, a husband, a father? Because leadership has a well, lot of yeah. different well, of course. categories. Of, of course, course. And if, <clears throat> to myself, and I have, it starts with myself. I have to have a vision for myself. Where I want, where I want, one for my, including what I want for my marriage, which brings in leadership of family, right there. What I want, and so I know that. And then I have to think. After I know that, I have to commit myself to it. After that, I have to decide what steps do I have to take to get there and implement those steps, and then keep focus on it, not make an excuse, not drift away from it. So I have, I have to be consciously step back and say, what do I want in my family? And then, of course, in the unit, what do we want together for this family? Mm. What do we want from our, for our marriage? Once in a while, any husband should sit, sit down with their wife and say, what do we want in this marriage? Am I living up to my commitment? In fact, husbands, I, I really highly recommend that once in a great while, mind you, sit down with your wife and say, I love you. I would like to know how I could be a better husband to you. Mm. And after she tells you... <laughs> Makes the long list. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to do that yeah, because only when you know the expectation of your spouse do you know how to set a, a vision for the future. That vision, that purpose cannot collide. It has to be aligned. That is a very important. And then you, you implement, then you commit yourself to it. And this is the same thing for yourself, for your family, for your life, for your work. It cannot be different because it encompasses human beings in all levels. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And they're all your neighbors. Mm. And, and isn't it all very clear? Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. Why do we dismiss some 
people mm. as our neighbors. Mm. Particularly, particularly when you work with you in the same business. If those interests are not aligned, this is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, yeah the, you know, <coughs> Jesus uses that parable of the Good Samaritan because he picks a Jew, a Jew and a Samaritan who were enemies. Yeah, the woman of the well. Right. I mean, come on, you know. It, 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 it's, so, it's all so clear. I, it, 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 he, he doesn't make it any secret what you should think of the people around you. And, and the model of service, too, yeah. is, is a, you know, that's a, a Christ-like quality that we, we struggle yeah. with. Yeah, I, I, I mentioned most things that we talk about in the book, of course, but uh, I, I had a laugh, and years ago I read uh, the uh, St. Benedict writing to his monasteries, if a guest arrives, if a they say he because only men traveled by themselves and went into monasteries. Monasteries were the shelter when he traveled in Europe. So he said, if a guest arrives, treat him as if it was Jesus himself. Well, if that's hospitality, I have to question myself, whoa, <laughs> how close do I come to that one? It's <laughs> you know, a high you know, bar. Yeah, there's a high bar. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, he told the, the, the abbey in the monastery, if the guest is by himself, travels alone, join them for, for the meal. Yeah. Wash their feet first, join them for the meal, even if you have to break your fast, because that is your guest. Wow. And, and, I, and if I think, all right, if that's hospitality, which she said, how close do I come? <laughs> you know? So I actually had to question myself, no, we can't do that, but, but sure. we can close. So I, I looked at that service and said, okay, what is it for me? And again, everybody talks about service. The people said, let them define what service means in their business. So I said, all right. He talked about receiving. Okay, it starts with, sure, that's where it starts. I can't serve them if they're not there. I can prepare for them. I can directly serve them. So it starts with a great greeting. Welcome. Not hi. Yeah. If I say hi, I'm saying, hey, we're equal. Casual, yeah. We're equal. If I say, welcome, sir, I'm saying, I respect you. But, but by the way, I'm very professional. I make myself even more equal than if I just say hi. Mm. But in the right way, with the respect given. So a great greeting. It has to happen. A great greeting in any, on the telephone, on the, in, it doesn't matter. And... The next step in service is to comply to the guests' wishes and needs. It's about them in that moment. If I create them fine and now concentrate on what to do for you and you and to fulfill your need and your wishes and, and fulfill them. That's the second step of service. The third step is saying, thank you for allowing me to serve you. Farewell. Once I had to find that, based on the uh, explanation of, of uh, St. Benedict, welcome, even have lunch with them, K- take care of them. No, it's not about you, you're fast, it's about them. Yeah. And then finally say for a while. Now, of course I have to say, what are the processes and so on, how do I teach it and, 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 and then implement it. That, so that's, that's how we worked. What, what I'm, all I'm 
I think I was conversed here about is how we build Ritz-Carlton, with what philosophy, what thinking, and later Capella, which is ultra luxury hotel company. By the way, nobody knows what Capella is yet. Everybody has seen one because nearly everybody watched Trump in Singapore with Kim, which happened to be in our Capella Hotel there. A company I created from scratch sold it two years ago. So it's a, it's a fascinating service and, and, and excellence and all that. It all comes together, you know, and, and very much in the, the relationship excellence plays a big role in the personal service, of course. As soon as you're in front of somebody, that relationship excellence plays a role, which would otherwise not, hey, yeah. Yeah. next. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's not a means to an end. Uh, can I ask you a personal question? Um, in your earlier years, what were the things that you valued then? And, and have those things changed in the things that you value now? Why well, yeah, sure, dramatically. I left home when I was 14, living by myself from there on, and living from there on in many countries, and so on. What did I value? Uh, I valued if I didn't have to work too hard, if I, had a, if I had a pretty girlfriend, if I made some decent income, and of course, saw pretty cars. I couldn't afford it, but so I would have things, whatever things. The world is things that you value. And in fact, the interesting thing is, I found it a little bit fascinating in a way. When I turned 80 a little bit over a year ago, I woke up and I was so grateful. This was, and I said, wait a minute, many people don't make it to 80. Hmm. And I said, wow, this is great, thank you God. And I mean, so, and we, particularly, Shannon, you know, when 25 years earlier I had a cancer where I was told I would have one year to live. And then I started to look back at my life and took really my time to contemplate my life. And Jonathan, there were regrets and they were all called sin. And I realized, my goodness, if I would have followed this word, the word, totally I would have no regrets. Can you imagine life without regrets? I wouldn't have any. Mm. I, I, because I could, I could see everything that I regretted started with a sin or, or was a sin. In that in itself, proves the word. Proves the word in that in itself. And I found that very first. And of course, one, that once you accept Christ in a different way, you, you, your values change. There's absolutely no question. The values change. And and uh, family and uh, to, to, to fulfillment and and uh, everything it is a different. But you become a different human being. Truly, uh, years ago when I first heard the word uh, born again, I, I thought too that's ridiculous. And I said there must be some strange people. But it becomes totally clear. Yes, <laughs> because I'm a different human being. You know. So was it a, a, a transformation in faith, or was it? Just a growing in faith that that yeah. brought that. Yeah. It yeah. was it was slow over time, or yeah. uh, all well, of a sudden. Or? Well, you know, I, uh, it's not that I came from somewhere and all of a sudden learned that there is God and Jesus. I grew, grew up as an institutional Christian, but there was no relationship. There was no following 
the word, there was no, uh, there wasn't accepting that there's God, but uh, okay, that's a, that is something I worry about later sometimes, maybe. This kind of attitude. My first transformation incidentally happened uh, after she and I got married, she insisted that we find a church and so on. And, so on. and, I, we, and I said, oh, well, I don't like church, I like uh, religions, and said, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a place where we can learn about God and get closer to God. And we went into a number of churches in Chicago. I, moved, I walked out of them in the middle of the sermon. That's not it. That's not what I'm doing. When we moved here to Atlanta, I moved without Sherry because she was pregnant and wanted to have the baby with her doctor in Chicago. And she said, you found a church. So I did the same thing here. I said, because you're not unhappy, so you find one before I come in there, then we don't have to do it together. And I, I happened to work into Charles Stanley Church after having been in several others. And I called her, like, there's a church that I like. And she said, what denomination? I said, gee, I'm going to drive by later and look. <laughs> double check. <laughs> I double check. I, I had no idea. I said, but I liked that was teaching there. And so the first few years before we joined the apostles, uh, I, I, we went in church, to church there. And then I had an incident. Uh, my mother called me. My father was deadly ill. She wants me to come right away because I don't know if he has a few days left. I flew over to Germany that night and prayed all the way to Germany. This hours in the plan, prayed and prayed and prayed that I would have some more time with my dad and so on. And I went to the hospital and he was there and he became better every day. Better every day and, and two weeks later I left. He was at home, doing very well. I flew back and I walked out the gangway from the plan and I stopped and made people behind me and I stopped. I froze, and I said, loud, I am a hypocrite. And I walked out of the plane, went in the corner to think it through. I hadn't prayed once on all the way back. I didn't say once, thank you. And I said, there, yeah, I have to make up my mind. I have, to make my, I have to make a decision. You see, I believe, Jonathan, that even believing, being being a true believer and accepting Christ is a decision. I made a decision there. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I believe and accept them or not. Joined the Bible class afterwards. I became a member here and, and my life changed. I have a friend in Germany who is a proud atheist. I mean, by the way, a great guy. You would want to meet him. He's an intelligent, he's a great guy. He's a caring human being, everything, I mean, isn't it? but he's an atheist. He's very proud being an atheist. We happen to love going for jogs and long walks through the forest and through the vineyards and so on, two, three hours. He loves to argue with me about belief. Sure. He loves it. I, and and we, then a year ago or so, or it's two years nearly, we went again for a long jog and, and walk and and all of a sudden, he didn't say anything. I said, oh, I'm glad he, I didn't feel like going through this again. And all of a sudden, I said, well, horse, you cannot prove that there is God, cannot be proven. Or Jesus. 
Also, das ist ein interessanter Argument. Und es ist ein silly one coming from you, because if you say I can't, you can't prove, but then you can't prove there isn't. So, and I said, Stefan, that means it's a decision. I decided for hope, and you against hope, including for your children. You in fact sentence your children not to have any hope. Never mind you. And he said, well, actually, I'm agnostic. <laughs> wow. I said, wait a minute, let's talk one minute. Let's see how we get from, go from here now. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's a decision. And I made that decision that day. And, and it changed everything. It changed my outlook on everything. You know, so um, uh, the, marriage, the marriage became different. Mm. The children became different. Everything became different. More beautiful. I submit clearly everything more beautiful, more fulfilling. Yeah. How did it then impact your view of excellence and leadership and the things that you had yeah. already been developing? In? Yeah, my, my analysis of excellence, as I said before, doing morally and thing, that didn't exist at that time. Excellence was just do it right, do something good, be sure it is good what you do. That was excellent. Like a mechanistic uh, sort be, of thing. Be, yeah, sure. Excellence was for me what I see excellence is for everybody, just words that you use often and forget about it. But that became something much deeper. When I, when I started to really think what is excellence, became much deeper. And I said, okay, yeah, there is this thing that I do that has been excellent. Until that, that um, hard work for me was excellence. I proved myself with nothing but work. I judged people only on work. But they, they could have done outside what they wanted. They were, to me, they were excellent people. But it's not true. There has to be also excellent morality and excellent spirituality fills a person. You cannot dismiss one or the other from the human being of excellence, so I have to pay attention to all those things if that is true. Hmm. Mm. I didn't pay attention to excellence in, in morality. I didn't pay excellence, attention to excellence in, in spirituality. In fact, very little relationship, as long as work function was there. Yeah. A lot of people listening to this will just be employees. They may never be managers. They may not ever have that, that role, no, that sure. title. But they may, they're probably most likely under some sort of management manager if that manager doesn't have your sort of giftings of leadership or, or, or the things that you train people up in, how how should they be excellent employees under poor management? Yeah, well, as I started off, the most important leadership is leadership of self. You have to go back and lead yourself. Step back and say, what is excellence for you? Once you see it, and don't just make a fast decision, that is silly. You have to agonize about it, what I want. What do I want my excellence to be at work? All that has to, you have to think about it. Once you make that decision, everything becomes easier. But first you have to make, commit yourself to the decision. I said it earlier, the model of leadership is finding that vision. That's good. And if you find your personal vision, it has to be good for the people around you. That's it. 
that once you determine that, commit yourself to it. Then determine what it takes to get there. You want your boss to be nice to me? Well, what it gets there maybe to be to say yes when you ask something. I'm happy to do that. Yes, come back this time. Come back an hour earlier. Happy to. Not why not the other guy? I'm happy to. Those are decisions that you have to make. What will it take to get to that point where you want to be, whatever it is? And I keep focus on that. Don't because things go right now say, well, it can't be done. That is what managers do. That's what weak people do. They find excuses which make them feel good for the moment. But it doesn't reward anything. Only the vision that you have rewards you. Yeah. Or resolve it. Or, yeah, that's right. The excuses, the explanations why it can be done will not give you anything. There's no beauty in it. So the individual, that, that individual leadership, and you have to work on that. Yeah, it's an accountability. The personal yeah. accountability to yourself. This is great. The more you work on the more you wonder why I'm, why I'm not doing that. The more you enjoy because you become in control of yourself by it. It's not just happening. Well, you've given me a lot to think about. I think these are wonderful, helpful tools for so many people dealing with the individual, ruling over yourself. You know, the Bible talks about self-control. And um, I just want to say thank you, Horace Schultze, for coming on to Candid Conversations. It's been a pleasure to have you. Jonathan, great to be with you. Thank you for joining us today. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend, leave a review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. By subscribing, you make sure you never miss an episode. It's delivered to you as soon as we release it. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit ltw.org candid to connect with these pages, share your questions with me, and get this week's free download. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Thanks for listening.